Colossians, encourage you to turn to Colossians. Colossians is in the New Testament. That's the second half of the Christian Bible. If you're not familiar with Christianity, um, you can look uh, at the table of contents. There's probably a Bible in the pew, and you can find in the table of uh, contents Colossians. Uh, You have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then in a ways is Colossians. (laughs) So just keep going right. Um, I, my high school choir teacher was called Mrs. Bowman, and she taught us, in my first year of high school, or first year of choir, a little music theory, but I, I don't really remember any of the theory, uh, I don't remember much of it at all, I was mostly there because I had no choice, <laughs> Uh, in our small Christian school, it was uh, choir was at 11, and that's you just show up. And it's small enough that if you didn't show up, everyone would know. So uh, what I do remember her teaching us was how to sing parts. I, I heard some of that this morning in our hymns. Soprano, alto, tenor, bass, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the line, on the lines there. And, it's, and to sing in such a way where we blended our voices together. And she was big on that, like you, you, you need to listen to each other and try to blend your voices together so it sounds good. And when a, when a choir sings those notes correctly, it is one of the most beautiful sounds in the world. It is, it is a beauty in the diversity of notes and voices and, and the diversity of people coming together to sing as one. Not, not singing the same notes, but singing together in one body. In perfect harmony, it's a glimpse of why all God's people at the end are gathered around his throne. And what are they doing? Singing. Different people with different voices and backgrounds and different skin colors and different tongues and tribes and nations all coming together and in perfect harmony will be singing glory to the Lamb. Now, friends, that is a picture actually directly connected to our life together as a church, our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness as a church. And that's what we've been studying Colossians, especially for the last four or five sermons, is how do we grow personally more to be like Christ and look like him? And how do we as a people grow more to be like him? Well, two weeks ago, I preached uh, about how we're putting certain clothes off and putting certain clothes on. And the thing that binds uh, all of the character traits of God in his people is love. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's, this picture is directly connected to our sanctification together, our life as a church. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony, Colossians three fourteen. So we're going to continue this theme of relational unity. What God wants in our church, in churches like ours, and and the church in the world, is a unity, a relational unity, and, and a pursuit of holiness that are connected and show off the marvelous grace of God who has chosen us, sanctified us as holy people, and made us one. And that's that's why we're pursuing sanctification, not We're pursuing holiness and holy living, not because we're legalistic or trying to earn salvation, but because Jesus Christ earned our salvation for us. I've already made a mistake. 
I didn't bring my phone up here, so I'm not timing it. So, so if, we, if we get a little too long, someone needs to be like, hey. Okay, so sanct- let me just define sanctification for you. Sanctification is a process by which the Holy Spirit is changing us. It's a process by which the Holy Spirit is changing us. We are God's people, won by his love, and his love is changing us to look more like Jesus. Compassionate hearts, humble, kind, meek, patient. Those are the kinds of things he's doing in us. But sanctification is a process. It's a the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it like this. The wor- sanctification is a work of God's free grace where he renews us in the whole man after the image of God, and we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Basically, that's to say this is a work of God, and it's a process. So if you weren't perfect yet, if you weren't perfect yet, you are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. So sanctification, Paul calls walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 10. He calls it maturity in Christ, chapter 1, verse 28. This is what God wants for every Christian. This is what God wants for every church. And so how does that happen? How how are we supposed to be sanctified together? How are we supposed to do this as a people? Well, Paul lays out the plan in Colossians, a a Christ-centered path to holiness, a grace-centered, a grace-driven, motivated path to holiness. It says to remember that Christ is above all and that you are united to him. Christ is supreme over everything. He created everything and he's redeeming everything to himself. And you are united to him. You are hidden in Christ, with Christ, in God, if you've repented of your sins and turned to him. And this process, you, you recall we've talked about it, it's, it's putting off the old man and putting on the new. It's putting off the old clothes and putting on the new. You put off clothes like you, like you fell into a porta potty. What's the first thing you would do when you get out? You rip those clothes off and take a shower and put on new ones. That's what it's like when you die to sin, you take them off. And so here's the sentence that we're going to be driving towards this morning. Relational unity thrives where the peace of Christ rules and the word of Christ dwells. Relational unity, see, we've talked about how to maintain it, how to preserve it. It's to put off the old and put on the new, but here's how it thrives, where the peace of Christ rules among us. And the word of Christ dwells. That's in verses 15 through 17 that Kayleen read for us. There's going to be two points. The first one's going to be short. The second one's going to be long, okay? And it's going to bleed right into the other. So let the peace of Christ rule among you. How are we to thrive in living a holy life, not being legalistic? We are to let the peace of Christ rule. That's what Paul tells us in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. So first, how do we let the peace of Christ rule? You you must know it. You must believe it. You, You must turn from your sins to God. Jesus has one peace for you through the blood of his cross. And you can have that peace with God and with others because of what Jesus has done. 
So how can it be we be at peace with God? Jesus did all the work. If you turn back one page to Colossians 2, 13 through 15, here's how he did it. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that just means you, you haven't died to sin yet. You, you who were dead to your, in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. That's Jesus. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So if you want to be at peace with God as an individual, turn to him because he's died for your sins. And he rose again from the grave. All the sins that you've ever committed in thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds, Jesus took the punishment for that sin in himself on the cross. And do you remember what's written over that debt? Paid in full. He did it all. And he says, turn to him. And he won't cast you out. You must receive this as a free, free gift. Turn from your sins and believe this good news. Then Christ's peace will rule among us. John 14, 27 says, Jesus is in the, with his disciples, and he's telling them he's going to go away. He's breaking the news to them. I have to leave. And he says this to them. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But in the meantime, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to testify of me. Whenever you read the Bible, he'll testify of me. And Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not, it's not a passing fancy. I give it to you permanently. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is saying, this peace is a gift from me to you, won by Jesus, given by the Holy Spirit, dwelling with you till I see you again. Dick Lucas says, and when, the, when he, that is Christ, rules in the heart, his peace will rule the fellowship. So how can we have peace with Christ? How can unity thrive among us? We must be at peace with God. We have to receive it. We have to believe it. And we have to rehearse it over and over again. I am at peace with God because of Jesus. So in order to let the peace of Christ rule, secondly, you must also walk the same way you received the peace. You have to walk in peace the same way you received the peace. That is by faith. Colossians 2, 6 says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You're putting off, putting to death the deeds of the body, putting off the old man and putting on the new clothes of, of compassion. To change the metaphor, what, what do the notes of the new life sound like? They sound like compassion. Humility, patience, it's all replacing the off-key notes of slander and malice and gossip and envy. And the overwhelming crescendo of it all binds together love. So, be at peace with God. Receive it as a gift. Walk in peace by faith. And then third, notice that the Christian life is not only 
individual, but it is corporate. We have to do this together. It is not just you and Jesus, though your personal relationship with Jesus is very important. The gospel is Jesus, others, and you. You are a part of a group of people. Notice what he said in verse 15. You were called in one body. You're, you know, the, the very word, the hearts of compassion, compassionate hearts is plural. It means a multiple people. It means many of you join together, just like this church who joins together in each other's sanctification. You've been called into this choir, as it were. You're no longer singing a solo. So just ask you the question, when was the last time you gave someone from this church or another Christian permission to peer into your life? To peer into the ugliness of your life and say whatever concerns them. Point out your blind spots. We don't like that as Americans, right, as individuals. Like we're, it's, that's private. That's between me and God. But, but Paul is telling us that our spiritual life is actually not private. It's corporate. It's together. We do this together. And we, we ask other people, where are my blind spots? Where am I sinning that I don't know that I'm sinning? Where, where is my need for holiness here in my, in my family life, in my, in my work life, in my personal life? If we want relational unity to thrive in our church, we have to be corporate about it. This isn't a, we're not, you know, Top Gun just came out. And it's, you know, we're not mavericks, friends. We, we aren't loners in this. We're together in this. And the fourth thing is to be thankful. We'll, re- we'll return to that later. It's a really important point in the book of Colossians. A thankfulness sort of is the underlying tone of everything that's going on. And I'll return to that. But the last thing We can let the peace of Christ rule us. The last way we let the peace of Christ rule us, Paul tells us, is to let the word dwell in us. The the peace of Christ, Christ will be ruling us, and his his peace will sort of be the the arbiter among us, the umpire, if you will. It's it's the one who's arbitrating disagreements or, 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 or fights among us. That will happen when the word of Christ dwells in us. So relational unity thrives where the word of Christ dwells richly. The verses 16 and 17, Paul says the second command in in thriving unity is to let the word of Christ dwell. So what does it look like when a church is living in perfect harmony? It's that choir that sings in perfect harmony. All the notes are sung just like they're supposed to be and just the tone just the pitch, How, what does that look like? Well, it, it's going to happen when it, the word of Christ dwells. That, that just means, the word means taking up residence in the hearts of his people. It's making a home. So what happens when someone buys a house? Well, they, they move in and they start to make it look like the way they want it to. They, they, start to, they start to rearrange, they rip up the carpet, they paint the walls, they hang the pictures, etc. They move in and they start to make it look like their own. And one of the ways the Spirit of God starts to 
do renovation in the heart is by the word of Christ taking up residence, dwelling richly in your heart. And it's the, the word of Christ. It's not just the message that Christ spoke. So it's not just the letters in red in the Gospels. It is, it is actually the message that proclaims Christ. It's the gospel. And this takes on shape among the church in their ministries. And, and Paul is telling us there's, there's sort of two ministries that show that the word of Christ is dwelling. There's relational unity and the word of Christ is dwelling. How do we know that that's happening? How can we take part in it? Well, there's a, a ministry of teaching and a ministry of song. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So first, the, one of the ways the word of Christ dwells in us is not just through our personal Bible reading. That's very important. But it also happens by the teaching of each other, us teaching you. Like, this is a corporate way we do that. But there's supposed to be you also teaching each other. You, Paul is giving you the job description that he had for himself. In chapter 1, verse 28, he, he said, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, him, that, that one, Christ, the hope of glory, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature to Christ. This is exactly what Paul did to the Colossians, for, for the Colossians and for, for other people. This is what he expects of every member of the church. To warn and to teach, to teach and to warn. So whenever, in order to present everyone mature, Paul was doing this. And then he instructs them, he tells them, you should be teaching each other as well. Teaching is just in instructing and in imparting truth. It's discipling others. It, it's, it's how we help others follow Jesus. And we do that best by letting the word dwell in our hearts richly. And then share it with others. You can't share with others what you don't have. The word must be dwelling in our hearts individually and then corporately. So how can we let the word dwell richly, take up residence, or make a home in our heart? Well, we have to take it into our minds, through our eyes, and or our ears. And we have to let it settle in our hearts and change our affections. That's a, it has to come into our eyes, through our ears, and let it settle into our hearts and change our affections. So just imagine it's like a relationship with a close friend. You know, we, we build close relationships by asking questions and listening, not only by telling. We... We open up to our friends, yes, but we must allow them to be open to us. Our closest friendships are, are with those who know the most about us and still love us, right? It, it, you know, that's why spouses are often very close friends, because they know the most about us and that they, they still stay. They still love. They still get up and make breakfast or or make coffee, or, or do that, that thing for one another. That's what friendship is. You, you know about someone, you still love them. 
the Bible is the place where we go to understand who God is. Friends, he is the most interesting person in the universe ever. He's infinite in all of his characteristics. Everything that we're supposed to be, compassionate, holy, kind, gentle, patient, he's those things perfectly all at once. You know, preachers can make the Bible uninteresting. We can be boring at times. I get it, right? I, when you fall asleep, it's not, only, uh, it's not only because you're uninterested. It's sometimes because I'm uninteresting. So, but either way, God is interesting, whether, whether we find him that way or not. He's always been. He always will be. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just all at the same time. God delights in things. I mean, just think of the, some of the things that he has made on this earth. He, he delights in, in, in trees and in flowers and in rhinoceros and, and rabbits. He is ultimately interesting. So here's, here's just what I want you to consider. One of the ways to... Uh, I'm sorry I'm distracted because I can't tell if that little boy is trying to hold someone in or let him out of the bathroom. <laughs> so I just had to tell that. Okay. Uh, so uh, what we want to consider is how, how to take the word into us. So can I just, uh, just a recommendation. This isn't a demand, uh, but it, 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 is a, it is a recommendation. Think about the Bible. It's a, a, a reading maybe a chapter a day. Or just take five days and, and read a chapter and then just think about it for 10 minutes. Just think about it for 10 minutes. That will slow you down and help you think about what is this all about. Asking the Holy Spirit to help you understand it. Before you read, while you read, and after you read. And then ask these questions. What is this teaching me about God? And what is this teaching me about myself? Maybe, maybe writing it out will help. So, read a chapter, think about it, 10 minutes, asking the Holy Spirit to teach you about God and about yourself, and then take what you have learned about God and yourself and turn it to prayer. This is really helpful in the Psalms. You can, you can flip to anywhere in the Psalms. They are, they are a, a, a songbook for the soul to express your emotions to God. Turn it to prayer. Personalize it. Put your name in there, in the, in the eyes, the we's. And then the fifth thing I want you to do is then talk about it with those you have a relationship with. Even if you only do that once a week, talk about it. What God is teaching you. And I have to admit, this is one of the hardest things to do. Talk about what God is teaching us on a one-on-one -on -one level. It's, it's actually a little easier to prepare, to get paid to prepare a sermon and then just tell you about it. Personal relationship, coming together, saying, hey, this is what God taught me. What has God taught you? That's really hard, but it's so rewarding. This is the ministry of discipleship, the ministry of teaching. I think Paul is talking about the unity of the body is, is going to thrive when we take part in our teaching ministry. And then... Brothers and sisters, this is a harder one, but the second part of the teaching ministry is not only imparting truth, it is warning. And this is what Paul did. He warned. 
when we get to into each other's lives, right, this way, when we, when we share what God is teaching us and, 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 and teaching us about ourselves, inevitably we'll come into contact with our own sin. Sin in our own lives and sin in others' lives. And the ministry of teaching involves knowing God and making him known. The ministry of warning, admonishing, involves warning people about how sin is destructive. Now, friends, we need to be brave enough to speak the truth to people about their sin. I need you to be brave enough to speak truth about my sin and how it's destructive, how it's harmful. We need to warn each other against living a life that is against the laws of God. Hebrews is full of warning passages. So is actually 1 John. It says if, if, we, if we say we love God but hate our brothers, we do not love God. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Relational unity sometimes calls for speaking the truth in hard situations. Talking to somebody about a specific sin that's harming them or other people. But friends, we are always called to speak the truth in love. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. He, he came with both grace and truth. He never erred on one side or the other because grace and truth are friends. And later on in Colossians, Paul says this. When we're speaking the truth, when we're warning people, he says in Colossians 4, to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that, uh, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. I, I have the wrong verse, but he, he, he says, says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And when Paul was, you know, pastors don't have a pass on this. Pastors don't just get to go around and yell the truth at people. Paul told Timothy in, in Ephesus when, when he was correcting his opponents to do it with gentleness in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. It's, and it's so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may be captured by him to do his will. The, the, the active engagement in the ministry of teaching and admonishing is an evidence that the word of God has taken up residence in our heart. So if you want to grow up in Christ and, and, and make sure relational unity is preserved and thriving in this church and in your family, you must get involved in teaching and admonishing. In 2007, 2008, somewhere I, I was sitting, the, the iPhone had just come out. And I was sitting at coffee with my friend Andrew, and uh, he had just gotten a new iPhone, and he was he was showing me it, and and just just showing me how cool it was, I suppose. And uh, I jokingly said to him something like, "Man, I hate you for having that," because I was a little bit envious of it. I, I, I liked it, and he looked at me with a smile, and he said, "Doug, I think you should read the book." The rare jewel of Christian contentment. That's all he said. You should read the, the rare jewel of Christian contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. 
And I said, oh, Andrew, I was just kidding. I, I don't really hate you. I'm glad you have the iPhone. He said, I, I know, Doug, uh, but you should still read the book. And it, it was helpful. He helpfully and graciously admonished me to take a look at my own sin, which was envy of discontentment. And he warned me with a book recommendation. Friends, a ministry of warning does not mean a ministry of changing people. I, th I think we get caught up with that. Like, if I warn this person about this sin, they're going to say this, and then I'll have to respond this way, and then they're going to say this, and then I'll have to answer it. And I'm not sure I can answer all their objections. Friends, 